you would turn to Matthew 17 as we follow along where John brought us a few weeks ago with the transfiguration and then last week. It was wonderful to have Hosella with us once again, our dear friend. And and let's begin in verse 14 of chapter 17. Read along with me. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and he suffers terribly. For he often falls into the fire and often into water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him. And the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. Now this This story occurs also in Mark's gospel as well as in Luke's gospel. In Mark's gospel, we get a lot more information about what has been happening here. And I'm going to read a little bit of Mark's gospel so you can fill in some of the holes. Jesus and the three disciples, John, James, and Peter, were up on the Mount Transfiguration, they just come down, and this is what they encounter. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, speaking of Jesus, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. That's what Jesus has come to. As he comes down the mountain, the transfiguration, the glory of God, that experience just fades in the background as he and his three disciples walk into this very difficult situation. They're no longer on the mount. And while they had been on the mountaintop, this desperate father brings a troubled son to Jesus' disciples. In fact, in Mark, the, the, the father says, I brought him to you. In other words, he came to find Jesus, but Jesus was on the mount, and so he goes to the disciples. He had come for Jesus, but since Jesus wasn't around, he asked the disciples, will you heal my son? And the father put his hope in Jesus, his disciple, to deliver his son, but it isn't, it isn't very long before that hope is shot down. 
Nothing the disciples do could get rid of that demonic spirit that Mark talks about. No doubt the crowd gathered around, and Mark says it's a great crowd. No, no doubt that crowd, after all they have seen Jesus do, after all they've heard Jesus do, no doubt that crowd expected a miracle. And when it didn't happen, Mark tells us that they began arguing with the disciples. What a, what a scene that must have been. What, a, what an embarrassing moment that must have been for his disciples. The questions that they'd be peppered with. Well, I, I thought you were with Jesus. How come, how come you can't heal him? Is this what it means to be a follower of the Savior? What a moment of despair it must have been not just for the disciples, but primarily for the Father, whose Son is still demonically possessed, whose Son is suffering terribly, as Matthew writes here, whose Son is the object of a demon's desire to put him to death by either drowning or burning. That is what is being faced here. And I would suspect all nine disciples gave it a try. Andrew steps up and says, well, I, I did it before. You know, Matthew chapter 10, Jesus sent those guys out and gave them authority to cast out demons, gave them authority to heal. And so Andrew steps up and says, you know, I'll, I'll do it. And he, he uses in the name of Jesus and, and nothing happens. And Philip says, step, step aside, Andrew, I'm going to do it. And Philip jumps in there, and, and, and nothing happens. And Matthew, who's writing this gospel, most likely is jumping in as well, as is Bartholomew and, and Judas, and all of the disciples are trying to cast this demon out, and nothing happens. And in the midst of their failure to heal, and facing this hostile crowd, Jesus arrives on scene. And the Father, in his desperation, immediately turns to him. And when they came to the crowd, verse 14, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and he suffers terribly, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples, and they could not heal him. I can, I can only imagine the look that he gave his disciples at that moment when Jesus looked at the disciples. The, the father just gave it all away and the disciples are standing there and I, I can just, I'm sure they felt relieved when Jesus first arrived. But after the father's comment about their failure, I'm sure they were uncomfortable. At 16 years old, not long after getting my driver's license, I kind of did a really stupid thing with my dad's fairly new car. 
one of the doors now had this whole new look it hadn't had before. And I had to, I had to call my dad and ask him to come to the scene of my moment. And when he arrived, I had two distinct emotions. Relief and abject fear. <laughs> That's what these guys are feeling at this moment. This sense of relief that, oh, the Savior's here. And then this, this abject sense of failure. What, what have we done wrong? And based on Jesus' response here, where he responds, he, he doesn't say anything to the Father, but he looks at the disciples and he says, Jesus says, and Jesus answered. Now, the disciples didn't ask a question, but Jesus answered what they were thinking. Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? That was Jesus' response to this situation where the disciples failed to be able to heal this father's son. Based on Jesus' response, relief isn't what these disciples experienced, but rather a, a, shark, a shocking and sharp rebuke. After, after all these disciples had witnessed and after all they had experienced themselves, healing the sick, they were casting out demons, as we read in Matthew 10, they were, they were faced with their own failure. A failure that Jesus defines as a very common malady for every Christian. He defines it as unbelief. An unbelief that became a major disappointment to the Lord. Now, when we read this story, though, we must be careful not to lose sight of who this story really is about. The main character in this story is Jesus, not the demon-possessed boy, not the, the, the suffering father, and not the disciples. It's about Jesus. And faith and unbelief, yes, they are crucial to this story, but in every gospel story, Every page of the Gospels are all about Christ. They all look to Christ. And so what we want to look at this morning is where, what do we know of Christ in this passage? In the midst of these disciples failing, in the midst of these disciples struggling with the issue of faith. And Matthew, in his wisdom, as one who was a part of this failure, as one who witnessed all of these things, Matthew shows us the nature and power of Christ in order to give us and his followers who were called to follow in his steps an understanding that our faith may experience some growth. In this story, Matthew shows us, first, Christ's humanity in a broken world. His divine power through his compassion for those who were suffering from the effects of sin and his enduring patience with his disciples who failed again and again. So before I go into these main points, let us pray with faith towards God 
that he will minister to us through the work of the Holy Spirit. God the Spirit. Will you pray with me? Father, we come to you asking that through the authority of your word, you would show us who your son is. That we might draw near to Christ knowing by faith that he will draw near to us. And as he draws near to us, we ask, Lord, that you would show us who we are and where our needs lie and how faithful you are to fill those needs. Oh, Lord, may may we be men and women of faith that you may be glorified. For that is why we are here. That is why we exist, to bring glory to your name. So three points, his humanity in a broken world, his compassion toward those suffering from the effects of sin, and his enduring patience with his disciples who fail again and again. His humanity in a broken world, verse 17, and Jesus answered, oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to bear with you? Anybody, I mean, You've heard Jesus speak with this forcefulness towards scribes and Pharisees and the religious. And at times he has patiently admonished his disciples, oh, oh you of little faith, but, but these, these are powerful and passionate words. Oh, faithless and twisted generation. And then to go on to say, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Jesus has come down from the heights of glory to the depths of sin and despair in this moment. This desperate father who has tried to do everything to heal his son finally ends up seeking out the only one who can heal his son. And Jesus, not being around this man, appeals to his disciples, and things could have not gone worse. And when Jesus learns of their failure, this is how he responds. His reaction to the disciples' failure is surprising. To me, when I first read this, it is shocking. I have never seen Jesus talk to his disciples this way. Yes, he's challenged them before for their lack of faith, but never like this. Now, this is where we see the humanity of Christ. He's human. He has many emotions. Numerous emotions. He's, he got angry when he turns over the, the money changers' tables. He grieves at Lazarus' tomb. He groans on the cross. He cries out to the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's wearied, as you see in John 4 with the woman at the well, and he's thirsty and tired. He's hungry in Matthew 4 when he encounters the devil and the temptations there. He's a man. He's a man with emotions. He's a man who can get frustrated. He's a man who can get angry. He's a man who can get disappointed. He's a man who can get hurt. 
yet without sin. And as a man, he was frustrated and disappointed and wearied by his disciples' faithlessness. After two years of pouring his heart and his soul into these men, he is shocked and frustrated with their struggle with unbelief. Without sinning, he still registers great disappointment in them. It's just his humanity that comes forth. And this is why his words are so firm. He knew what was in their heart. He knew what was in the hearts of this faithless crowd surrounding them. And it's why he calls even, not just the disciples, but the crowd around a faithless and twisted generation. Listen, the crowds that followed him, they were thrill-seekers. They just wanted to see more healings. They wanted to experience more miracles. And the scribes and Pharisees that followed him around, they were doing it because they wanted to trap him to find a reason to put him to death. The disciples do have a genuine faith. But we see it as a poorly functioning, impoverished faith. Now, that, that's surprising to a guy like me reading this, thinking, what's up with these guys? What, what is their problem? Two years with Jesus? What's the big deal? But I'm just like them. 46 years with Jesus, reading this Bible, being around God's people. And how often have I been frustrated when I've tried to do things for the Lord and it has fallen flat. Not to in any way elicit your sympathy. But there are moments I go home on a Sunday afternoon and Marilyn and I are driving home and she says to me as we're leaving this building, she said, so how do you think your message go? Ah, I don't want to talk about it. Do you think anybody's coming back next Sunday? (laughs) I know I'm not. (laughs) Many attempts in, in ministry ways that have failed, and my faith has been assaulted. And here, his disciples have experienced the same thing. And his reaction to them is, to me, shocking. He's challenged them before. He's been frustrated a bit with them before and disappointed and wearied by their faithlessness. And after two years of pouring out his life into them, you would think they would have gotten it. They've watched him. They've watched him do all these things. Why are his words so firm? Because he knew what was in their hearts. He knew what was, what was going on inside of them. The disciples do have a genuine faith. They've, they've watched Jesus. Think about this. They've watched Jesus not only cleanse a leper, but touch a leper. They've watched Jesus touch a man with a withered hand, and that hand healed instantly. They watched him raise a little girl from the dead. They have watched him heal the lame, give sight to the blind. 
They've watched him deliver demon-possessed Gadarean demoniacs. They've watched him do miraculous things. And yet, they still lack faith. They walked and they ministered in his authority. Think about that. Matthew 10, Jesus sends them out. He says, my authority I'm giving you to heal the sick, to raise the dead, to cast out demons. They had his authority. So what went wrong here? They had walked in his authority, but they've, they've missed what faith truly is. And I think with him gone, and them down among this crowd that's pressing in and pushing them and expecting them to do a miracle, I think they, they seem to have misunderstood where the power to heal came from. Where the power to cast out demons came from. It was not in them. It was not in their words. It was not in their technique. Andrew, you're just standing the wrong way. It's got to be one hand in the name of Jesus. No, 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 Philip. You, you You have to say it quietly. Come out. And their approach and their words and their technique did not work. They were so successful before, but here they have failed. And that is what is so frustrating for Jesus. How could they miss where their faith resides? Where did their faith reside? Their faith resides in Christ. Their power resides in Christ. And why this is such an important moment and why he is so emotional at this moment is because he's not going to be around in the future. the, The cross is not far away. His death is just around the corner. And the question for these disciples and for every follower of Christ, you and me, is will we stand firm when he's not around? Would they remain faithful without his presence? Would they believe all he had promised them? Listen, we don't know how many times they tried to cast out that demon, but at some point they just gave up trying. They gave up. Because they faced this problem with a self-confidence that came crashing down. And we're not much different, brothers and sisters, than these guys. It's easy to look at myself for the solution to a problem rather than to Christ. And that's what gets me into trouble. Sometimes the most famous words I say in our household that makes Marilyn cringe is, I got this. (laughs) Until I don't got this. She told me, this was years ago, she said, the brakes on the car sound like they're getting thin. 
And she grew up with a brother who's a mechanic and doing all this great work. So she expected her husband to do the same thing. So I was going to do the same thing. Sure, I'll go ahead and repack the bearings in the, in the wheels and the brakes. Never done it before. Didn't even know what bearings looked like. Had to go to the auto parts store. I got this. Six hours later, I got this. And the brakes were locked. Six hours later, and I was calling a mechanic. Can you help me do what I cannot do? Sure. It's only going to cost you twice what you've already paid. (laughs) I got this. And that's what got me into trouble. And that's what gets the disciples into trouble here. When their solution didn't work, they just caved. It's what they often did in the face of the trials they were in. The storm at sea, they caved. Feeding the 5,000, Jesus says, you feed them, they caved. Feeding the 4,000, Jesus says, you feed them, they caved. Peter, walking on the water, looks down, he caves. On each of these occasions, Jesus admonished them for their lack of faith. He asked them, why do you doubt? And now, unable to cast out a demon, Jesus tells them why. He says it's unbelief. And that's Matthew's main point. And the main question is, and this is a question for you today, because there are things right now that you are thinking about. There are experiences that you are walking through right now. There are frustrations that you feel right now. And the question that Matthew's asking in this towards us is, why do you doubt Jesus? Do you doubt him? Do you doubt his love? Do you doubt his promises? Do you doubt his nearness? Why do you doubt? We, we can be so like these disciples, showing... Showing great faith at one moment and doubting the next. Just, just days before, Peter and the other disciples in chapter 16 look at Jesus and say, you are the Christ, the Messiah. You're the Holy One who has come. Your kingdom has come. And now they can't cast out a demon. They had a faith that proved to be fragile. And Jesus, in his humanity, being one of us, has come to show that faith is possible because he demonstrated perfect faith as a man in his Father, even in a dark, sin-suffering, demon-infested world, he trusted his Father's word. The circumstances did not define his faith. He obeyed his father's plan. He did not waver in his faith even when he was in the most horrific circumstances. Peter observes this all and he tells us what we are to do later on in his epistle. In 1 Peter 2.21, he simply says, we're to follow in his steps. Listen, regardless of his disappointment and frustration, though, 
Listen, Jesus does not ever turn away from us. Never. When he rhetorically asks, how long am I to be with you? Or how long must I bear with you? He has only one answer. As long as it takes. As long as it takes. All the way to the cross. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Behold, I will be with you always to the end of the age. I will always bear with you. Secondly, not only do we see his humanity, we see his compassion towards those who are suffering. This is a short point. This story is more about a faithful Savior whose deep compassion took him to a suffering world. That's why he came into our world. And, and, and it's, it's less about the faithless disciples, although we are to learn about them. Jesus' compassion is what's on display here. He came to help a helpless boy, a helpless father, a helpless generation, and a helpless band of disciples who needed the helping grace of God. That's why he came. So in verse 18, and Jesus rebuked, or verse 17, how long am I to bear with you? And then he says these words. He says these words that must have been heavenly music to the Father's ears. Bring him to me. Bring him to me. Even in the midst of the disciples' failure, Jesus remains compassionate and merciful and gracious as a Savior who does the impossible. Bring him here to me. And with a word, Jesus casts out this violent, wicked demon that was trying to destroy this boy. With a word, he destroys the works of the devil. Martin Luther tells us, with one little world, word shall fell him. And that's what happens here. This story in Matthew's Gospel is a story not primarily about a sick boy, failed disciples, or a hostile crowd, but a grace-filled Savior whose humanity and love and grace and compassion are on display, whose authority is unmatched and whose patience is unsearchable in its depth. It's a story of God's grace, brothers and sisters, in the midst of a faithless people, which tells you that even when you are faithless, and there are times where we are all faithless, where we all struggle with sin, where we all are faithless, God still remains present. Jesus came to do what he always came to do. The impossible. He came to do the impossible because in Christ, with Christ, for Christ, through Christ, all things are possible. And finally, his endure, third, his enduring patience with his disciples who fail again and again. Not only does he heal in this situation where his disciples were unable to and where they have lacked faith or they have been living in unbelief, but Jesus has patience with them. Verse 18, and Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him and the boy was healed instantly. Then verse 19, then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, 
because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like the grain of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Now, this seems like a contradiction. He's telling these disciples, you have little faith. And now all you need is faith as tiny as the grain of mustard seed. So which is it? Well, he's making a distinction here between their little faith and mustard seed faith. The best way to put it. Listen, the disciples were dismayed at their failure. As we all are. They had been so sure. They'd been so successful in the past. What went wrong? And, and Jesus, doesn't, Jesus doesn't waste words. He just tells them it's your little faith. And, and little faith, what he's referring to, is really a poor quality or a poverty of faith because he goes on to speak of this mustard seed faith being able to move mountains. Let, let me describe mustard seed faith to you. It's the Father running to Jesus, falling at his feet, pleading with him, have mercy on my son. And in Mark, in Mark, oh, it's even more, it's even more powerful because the man comes to him, they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked the father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it often cast him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. And then he says this, the father says this, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. That's mustard seed faith. That's this man understanding where faith resides. Who is the one who is faithful? Who is the one who has all authority? Who is the one who is all powerful? Who is the one who can cast out demons, heal the sick, raise the dead, make the lame walk? The one who came to redeem us of our sin by going to the cross in obedience to his Father. By suffering in our place, taking on our judgment, dying our death, and rising from the dead that we might come to newness of life. That's who this man says, I believe. Help my unbelief. In Mark's Gospel, Mark ends this this story where he says, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. And what Mark is letting us know is the answer to the disciples' question, why can't we drive this demon out, is because you're not dependent upon God. What is prayer? It is dependence upon God. It is, I believe, help my unbelief. God, help me. That is what is being taught here. 
The greatest problem in this story was not the demon-possessed boy, but everyone's unbelief. And brothers and sisters, listen, at times there is often a tug of war in our lives of faith and unbelief, just as the father experienced. But he turned to Christ. Now, how do you know if there's unbelief in your life? Well, there are, there are some signs. Listen, when, when you get angry that God is not meeting whatever situation or circumstances or provision you need. James 4 tells us why there are fights and quarrels among you. It's because you want something and you're not getting it. You, you ask with wrong motives and you do not ask God. Anger, anger reveals unbelief. I need my children to be obedient. Why are they not obedient? I need to be healed. I've been asking God for years to be healed. Why hasn't he healed me? Or when you're fearful, you can't trust God. Because when you are fearful, you're the one wanting to control the circumstances. Or complaining when you complain about your circumstances. You should take this to mean that you're looking everywhere but Christ. I, I always think, okay, in a situation, what's the worst that can happen? And then I always come up with this answer. I could die. Well, that's not too bad. And Marilyn always says, no, 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 that's not faith. And I say, well, yeah, it is. It's great faith. I think it's great faith because if I die, I'm with God. Yeah, but you're not with me. No, 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 don't, don't go anywhere. Listen, after, after an entire chapter on men and women of faith, flawed men and women of faith who at times did not trust God, who were flawed, the writer of Hebrews 11 implores us in Hebrews 12 to fix our eyes on Christ, the author and finisher of our faith. Faith in his goodness, faith in his character, faith in his grace, faith in his love. Listen, I, I remember the turmoils of the 1960s. The Vietnam War, racial struggles, civil rights marches, protests, bombings, riots, sit-ins. It was a frightening time for me as a young teenager. But now as a man in my 60s, my later 60s, our world even now feels much darker to me and more uneasy than any time I have ever known. There is no hope I see in this world other than Christ. And if I fix my eyes on anything other than the author and finisher of my faith, I will crumble, and so will you. Jesus is committed, brothers and sisters, to growing that tiny mustard seed of faith planted in you when you were born again. He's faithful to complete the work he began in you. So do not grow weary from doing good. Hold fast, the writer of Hebrews says, hold fast the confession of your hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. In Romans 4, Abraham, when he was old, he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, thankfully not 67, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No, no, unbelief made him, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in faith as he gave glory to God. Listen, I, I often find that people express their greatest faith in their greatest sufferings. 
but struggle most in their daily trials. They're less apt to fix their eyes on Christ and try and figure things out all by themselves. Faith is believing that Jesus cares as much about your small daily trials as the big ones that you are facing. Your daily with sick children or difficult children or marriage conflicts and irritations you have or marriage disappointments. He, he should be a better spiritual leader or she should respect me more or job disappointments or church disappointments. Brothers and sisters, we are called to live our lives in a faithless and godless society. Every hour of every day we hear different viewpoints that are on a collision course with our faith. Our minds are assaulted from every platform. It's a banquet of heresy, false teaching, immoral beliefs, and godless ideas. These things like, like torpedoes can destroy our faith below the surface. They steal the precious truths of the gospel one bit at a time. We still believe, but our, our faith at times can be overcome by unbelief. Listen, unbelief is always about God. What we don't believe about Him, what we don't believe about His character, what we don't believe about His word, what we don't believe about His promises, what we don't believe about His love, what we don't believe about His faithfulness, what we don't believe about His warnings. And that's what these disciples faced, is unbelief. And so we see, we see the antidote here. I believe, help my unbelief. As opposed to a self-sufficient, I can do this, I got this. Mustard seed faith is a reliance on the grace of God. And in His grace, in His grace, God gives His faith and strength and He grows our faith. Faith is not a commodity to be collected, but a gift to be received. It's all of grace. And let me close with this. It's the grace that justifies us before a holy God. It's the grace that provides us access to God to communicate and fellowship with Him that God gives us. It's the grace that wins for us a new relationship of intimacy with God. That's the grace God gives us. The grace that disciplines and trains us to live in a way that honors God. The grace that grants us immeasurable spiritual riches. The grace that helps us in our every need. The grace that is the reason behind our every deliverance. And the grace that preserves us, comforts us, encourages us, and strengthens us. That's grace for you. Grace is actively and continually working in the lives of God's people. Paul credited the success of his ministry not to his own substantial labors, but to the grace of God that was within me. Grace is ongoing, a benevolent act of God working in us without which we can do nothing. Grace is greater than your sin, more abundant than you expect, and too wonderful to even comprehend. And that grace is yours now. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for the gift of faith you give us and the Holy Spirit who dwells in us to, to help us grow in faith and grace that we might live lives that follow in the steps of Christ and give glory to you. And Lord, may, may the words, I got this, become, you got this. 
We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.